My name is, I'm so sorry about this. <laughs> uh, my name is Elizabeth Brand Monroe, and I teach history at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, commonly abbreviated as IUPUI and other things that we're not going to talk about here. Um, I teach local and community history to graduate students in Indianapolis. Uh, however, in my course, I do not teach about local Indiana history or even Midwestern history. I choose what I think are fine examples of local history wherever I find them. One of my favorite examples is about the life and surroundings of an unknown clog maker in a forested region of France in the 19th century. It is a tour de force of how to use national and provincial archives to discover the everyday lives of people who left no personal records. I see my teaching task as similar to yours, <laughs> people who work in the, in the public venue, let's say, um, in terms of introducing good history that relates communities, the social component, to places, the physical location. I hope Tom, Pam, and Kent can accept my definition, at least for an hour and 15 minutes or so. Um, today I have the pleasure of introducing Tom Mason, a friend of long-standing, Kent Calder, a semi-long-standing friend, <laughs> and Pam McClanahan, who I met about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um, all of whom are experienced in publishing the best local history and in helping potential authors some of whom I hope will be my graduate students, uh, to find markets for their research. Before I introduce the three of them, I have a message from Bob Beattie, who sent um, directions to session chairs uh, on how to conduct sessions. And I've also incorporated some of my own teaching rules. So here are the rules. I'm the timekeeper chair arranger, in another session there was some chair rearranging. I think this is hopeless, but we'll make do with what we've got. Um, handout person and logistical officer in general. Uh, we have until 5.15. I started on time. We'll hold questions till the end after presentations by our three speakers. If you don't have questions at the end, you will not pass the class. <laughs> You are expected to ask questions because this session is intended to be interactive. In fact, it started out as a round table but was changed because of the idea of recording this and probably because of the posts. Um, so plan your questions to demonstrate that you are awake and that you want an A. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce all three speakers. Pam McClanahan, whom I just met, is the director of the Minnesota Historical Society Press and publishes print and ebooks, the Minnesota History Quarterly Journal, and the digital only, I hope I don't mispronounce this, Encyclopedia of Minnesota, NMOpedia. Is that what it goes by? Menopedia. Menopedia. I like MNOpedia better. That's the only one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, her publishing career spans work in college texts, 
theological course books, new media, literary journal management, and book acquisitions and development. She has recently also added content strategy tasks at the Society to her duties. Kent, Halder, Kent Calder, sorry, uh, whom I've known since the early 1970s when we shared a podium at AASLH in Saratoga Springs, New York, is currently acquisitions director at the University of Oklahoma Press. He has also served as executive director of the Texas State Historical Association as editorial director of the Wisconsin Historical, uh, Historical Society Press, managing editor for the Indiana Historical Society Press, and manager of development and permissions for Harcourt College Publishers. He's also directed the scholarly publishing program at Arizona State University. Tom Mason, whom I've known since we both started in graduate school at the University of Virginia, is now 40, 46 years later, I counted up today, um, a colleague on the teaching faculty at IUPUI. He has also taught history at UNC Pembroke. But he shifted to editing about for about 30 years, first in Charlottesville as associate editor, later acting editor of the papers of James Madison and then as director of publications and later vice president of the Indiana Historical Society Press. Um, at this point, I'm going to turn the program over to them. I'm going to sit down and write notes so that I too have some questions at the end of this presentation. I've been working on a book for many years and I'm open to all kinds of suggestions. Um, but as I said, the, the question period is really on you. I can get them later. Thank you, Liz. Uh, when Kent and I uh, were at the Indiana Historical Society Press, and I suspect that Pam has also encountered this at the Minnesota Historical Society Press, we concluded that the first and most important thing uh, that we had to do uh, was to identify our audience. And essentially, that's the most fundamental issue that any author or publisher uh, whether the publisher is large or small, must address. Uh, who is your audience should be the first question that a researcher or writer or publisher should ask. The answer to that question will then determine the medium, uh, whether it's going to be a printed book or an article or a website or microform, uh, and the level of detail and the length uh, to which uh, the writer will present the results of research. From the nature of your audience, everything else follows uh, in terms of how you communicate your content, the historical subject matter that is the result of your research. The nature of your audience will dictate if your publication is successful, how your publication is written, uh, how it's designed, formatted, whether it's going to be in print or um, published electronically marketed um, and sold and otherwise uh, disseminated. Uh, as the researcher and writer proceeds uh, with each sentence and paragraph, an author must make decisions about what to include and what to leave out, uh, providing enough information so the reader has proper context for the subject at hand, but not so much that the reader is overwhelmed 
uh, becomes lost or bored with information that is commonly known. Uh, only writers who have a good understanding of their audience can make such decisions. Now the potential audiences for local history range widely. Um, often we'd have to field questions from genealogists uh, and family historians uh, who write histories of particular families which they intend for an audience numbering perhaps in the hundreds. Uh, authors of such micro-histories often find that the most cost-effective means uh, of publishing their work would be to have it duplicated at a quick print company that then can bind the work attractively and the author can then donate uh, the work to family members and local and genealogical libraries. Uh, we all know that uh, print-on-demand technology offers new outlets for this kind of work, uh, but a broad readership is generally not the primary goal of genealogists. A lot of us who went through graduate programs uh, often uh, succeed in writing dissertations that meet the standards. Basically, essentially, you know in advance in, in a graduate program uh, who your audience is going to be. Uh, it's going to be that uh, small committee of maybe uh, half a dozen uh, specialist scholars um, and um, recent alumni of graduate programs uh, then, however, often face an, uh, an awakening. Uh, if they're lucky, it'll be an epiphany uh, when they try to persuade a press uh, to publish a book based on such a highly specialized uh, thesis or dissertation. Uh, there's an old proverb about graduate education that asserts that graduate students start out uh, knowing a little bit about a lot of things. They then learn more and more about less and less until finally they know everything about nothing. Um, there's a common misconception, certainly among graduate students, but also among first-time authors uh, and students of uh, basically all levels, um, that uh, they have a reluctance to give up or cut out from their draft publication any minute bit of detail because it took so long to discover in the first place, in the, in the research uh, phase. And so the result is, in some cases, a thesis or a dissertation or a book of doorstop length that few, if any, people will actually read. So if um, they're going to reach a non-specialist audience, all authors, basically, we've, we've all had to learn this uh, process whereby uh, authors have to do a kind of crossover. Um, they must converge on the specialist subject, but they also have to diverge to put that subject into context and provide enough background so it will be understandable by a non-specialist audience. If you can get that balance right, uh, that's the great challenge of authorship, and those authors who can do it will then succeed and get their work published. Uh, when the AASLH Book Committee um, uh, asked uh, Kent and uh, me to uh, launch uh, the project that became Writing Local History Today, uh, essentially we were very conscious of uh, the previous uh, Bible in the field, uh, by Thomas Felt, and it was part of the uh, AASLH book series, first published in 1976, 
and it's called Researching, Writing, and Publishing Local History. So this was the, the standard um, that uh, we were guided by back in the 70s and 80s. Felt's book um, was uh, reprinted four times, went through two editions, uh, stayed in print for 20 years, and it was a wonderful book at its time. But uh, the publishing enterprise has been totally transformed by the advent of computers. So the ASLH Book Committee uh, decided that basically a whole new book uh, was needed, and so that's how and why Kent uh, and I um, started work on the book that AASLH book series came out with um, uh, in November of last year uh, called Writing Local History Today. However, um, Thomas Felt had a wonderful and still instructive um, uh, concept of how to segment the market uh, how to analyze uh, what, uh, what your audience might be for a local history project. Uh, and he essentially uh, recognized uh, uh, four um, uh, major um, types of audience, the first of which was uh, what he called a dedicated and knowledgeable uh, group of students of your subject, never more than a handful. Now, that's a sobering uh, sort of prospect. Uh, his um, category number two uh, is uh, adults with a real interest in at least some aspect of your subject, which might number in the hundreds. And then beyond that, he identified adults, usually affluent, sharing some interests with members of the last group, but with a more casual interest in history, who would be attracted to well-illustrated coffee table books, uh, which would become um, a secondary market with higher production costs. Fourth major category uh, is a juvenile readership uh, to meet the educational standards that are set by state and federal education authorities uh, aimed at school uh, and library sales. So the Indiana Historical Society Press has had some success in publishing books for young, and by that we mean uh, middle and high school readers. And then finally, uh, Felt identified a category that he called adults living or working outside the locality or special topic you are describing. And that, however, that kind of book uh, requires an exemplary study uh, by a sophisticated author. So we can ask ourselves, what are your options for reaching your audience? Uh, whether that's going to be a book buying audience uh, or an audience of web users who are all too accustomed to getting their information for free. Um, the good news for authors uh, and historical organizations that it's now easier to get published in some way, shape, or form uh, than it ever has been in the past. Um, and the advent of electronic publishing has broadened uh, the options for authors and historical organizations and revolutionized the publishing interest, um, industry. However, the more sobering news is that the specialist monograph that used to be the bread and butter for historical societies and university presses is much less tenable today than it used to be. Specialist monographs now sell maybe 200 or 300 copies if the publisher is lucky. Uh, and at those numbers, it's impossible to recover production costs. So as a result, uh, historical societies and university presses are seeking mid-list, what they, in the terminology that they use, mid-list mid titles that will appeal to a more general, non-specialist audience. There are some categories or circumstances 
in which the specialist monograph can still be viable in the right circumstances. So if a publisher has, say, a title list in um, specialist uh, public, uh, uh, subject areas such as military history, especially civil war, uh, you know, civil war and military history generally sells pretty well. Also, museum publishers with title lists focusing on art history uh, and where those publishers have the knowledge of how to market to their subject areas, uh, they can still successfully market such monographs. Um, essentially, publishing involves, incurs uh, two major categories of cost, uh, the fixed and the variable. Now, the fixed costs include uh, research, writing, design, composition, those phases that are unaffected by the number of copies that you print. Uh, in the electronic age, um, uh, design and composition, we now call pre-press, uh, and the fixed costs are present whether or not they're born gratis by the author um, for both electronic publications and printed books. So a lot of people think, oh gosh, think of uh, the money we're going to save if we uh, publish electronically. Um, well, uh, you're only going to save on the fixed costs of uh, printing paper and binding, um, uh, which are uh, dependent on the number of copies that you print, uh, or uh, the number of copies sold, and that would be in the category of, say, royalties to an author. The only savings, then, that uh, electronic publishing um, can realize, um, uh, it, say, if you publish on the web, uh, and this is assuming that your web publication is well designed, and you know, the web publication design incurs its own set of costs, uh, is the fixed costs of uh, printing paper and binding. And I will point out uh, our mutual um, friend and colleague, um, uh, Greg Britton, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, short essay that we publish as an appendix uh, to our book, uh, called Why Books Cost, uh, a, a, a quick survey of um, uh, finance for uh, local history publishers. So um, I won't go into further detail. Uh, if you're interested, uh, check out Greg Britton's um, uh, wonderful uh, brief uh, introduction to the finances of uh, book publishing. Um, and even if you save some money by publishing on the web, uh, those savings are often offset by the cost of having to convert to files uh, appropriate for uh, e-readers. Uh, and often, uh, we used to hear the term desktop publishing thrown around a lot, and actually that's a misnomer. It really should more accurately be called uh, a desktop composition. Um, perhaps later in a question and answer um, session, uh, we can address uh, the pros and cons of various media such as books, booklets, websites, CDs, DVDs. Uh, after the formal part of the session is concluded, uh, we can respond to your areas of interest and we can go into detail about that. Um, so it's important to distinguish between your audience, on the one hand, and the potential universe of people who will be willing to pay for your publication. So don't confuse audience with, you know, paying customers. Those two parts of your market will overlap, but they sadly by no means coincide because a lot of people are accustomed to getting their information literally for free on the Internet. Um, 
the Indiana Historical Society Press uh, learned to our sorrow uh, that the number of people who will actually pay uh, for things like um, conference proceedings or cumulative indexes of, say, uh, historical journals, which are absolutely crucial as research tools, but people don't want to pay for that. They're, they're, they're not going to pay for paper printed copies of such things. Um, however, uh, it was a revelation to us that when we put such research tools on the web, uh, even before they were advertised or marketed, uh, they would receive tens of thousands of page views. So a lot of people, there's a lot of interest, but people are literally unwilling to pay for such things. Uh, so you've got to distinguish between your customer base and your audience. Um, to justify the expense of a book in the 21st century, you really have to have a potential book buying public, not just an audience of several thousand. Uh, throughout the publishing industry, I read a, an amazing statistic uh, as we were working on this book that only about 7% of all book titles and about 5% of self-published books uh, sell more than 1,000 copies. So while there's uh, the new media in various formats, including all forms of social media, uh, provide a, a wide range of alternative delivery systems for historical content and may bring that content to many more individuals, uh, the writing still may not justify the uh, investment and risk that is the key uh, to any book project and to understanding the thinking of uh, editors and publishers. Thank you. What? Make it up. Hi there, everybody. I'm just going to pull this up, cross my fingers. Uh, slideshow. Okay, I'm Pam McClanahan, director of the Minnesota Historical Society Press. I used to have obstructed view seats for the Minnesota Gophers hockey, <laughs> and we used to watch the hockey game like this, but they were half price, so if I see you doing that, I know that you're interested. I have a, my first boss ever in publishing in the room, a couple of published authors, some colleagues. Hello to everybody. How many published authors are in the room right now? Hooray for authors. <laughs> um, welcome. I'm going to start off by telling you a little story. I just bought land in Ely, Minnesota, um, up in the Boundary Waters, four miles literally from the end of the road. And we're going to spend time thinking about building a cabin ourselves. We're going to spend the next nine months researching, walking the land, seeing where the sun hits, how the snow mounts up, where it's the windiest, where our best building site might be. We'll also talk with everyone we know who has done that same thing, build a cabin. And we'll hire specialists, of course, like well drillers and electricians. And me, well, I'm going to read books because that's what I do, how to build a cabin. We live in an age of do-it-yourself. If I was ready to publish my own book, I might be tempted to publish it myself. I know a lot about book publishing. But where a cabin is an object and a project and an expression of ideas, it's not a commodity I'm eager to share with the world. In fact, the fewer people who discover my cabin, the better off I'll be. 
But you know what? A book is. And Tom mentioned that. The business of making books, creating pathways to find that book, and then actually selling them is really hard. If I was looking to publish a book of essays, say, with markets in both the trade and the higher education, with maybe some potential for international sales, I'd work with a full-service publisher. And I'm not saying that because I'm biased. Um, I'd find a publisher willing to offer me a solid and fair contract and a spot on a seasonal list with books that reach the same kind of markets I hope to reach. And what's more, I want to work with a publisher who can offer me more than the traditional nuts and bolts of publishing because you know what, you can buy that yourself on the market. I want someone who can effectively promote my work in partnership with other organizations and into regional communities. And I'm going to tell you why. Mm -hmm, if I can, no, there must be an arrow. Enter. So this is a quote from a scholar who is participating in our University Press Awareness Week, a, a scholar from Syracuse University, who says, for me, the press staff of Syracuse University Press were my teachers over the years, instructing me at every stage of the publishing process how to prepare a manuscript for submission, how to get images and permissions letters, how to structure a bibliography and organize an index, the vital role of copy editor, and on and on, he says. Some of the best publishers in my mind are regional independents, history, historical society presses, and university presses. My talk is going to touch on 10 important questions you should ask as you investigate a full-service publisher. And I don't have all the 10 written down, but if you want them, just email me. Uh, this is a chart from a um, video that an Italian publisher put together as a rebuttal to criticism that publishers shouldn't charge so much, particularly for an e-book. And it lists out typical editorial design and production processes that most publishers go through. Tom touched on that already. Here's your first question. What are the editorial design and production steps your potential publisher follows, and how are you as author involved along the way? And if you're in the contract stage for your book, look to see if there are clauses in your contract that relate to these processes. Make sure you understand them. Now, we all know that publishers now have not only a print strategy, but a digital, digital strategy. 70% of MNHS books have accompanying e-books. And we've also published book apps and enhanced e-books. Our e-books are resold through 10 different resellers, bringing books to readers where they want them. That's our mantra, bringing books to readers where they want them. Nook, Kindle, iPad, phone. Our production design manager, Dan Leary, read the entire Harry Potter series on his cell phone. Not me, but ask a publisher about their digital strategies. Also, if you haven't already, begin ordering ebooks yourselves. See what works for you, what decisions publishers have made regarding readability. Some don't take as much care doing the proofing of their ebook, some don't include all the images. Some have spent some really good time enhancing features with uh, video and audio. Let's get over that. Um, ask a publisher where their books are sold and distributed. Ask them if they present authors with marketing plans customized for your book. 
And then if you're considering a publisher, look for their books in all the places you might find books, independent bookstores, gift stores, publisher websites, on Amazon, in Scribd, in Goodreads, in the iBookstore, get a sense of availability. So here's what we do as publishers to find readers for you writers. We spend a lot of time tracking digital and print on a daily basis using software that identifies specifically the buyers, their history of orders and reorders, and copies returned. You can see this is a chart of everything you wanted to know about Indians, but are afraid to ask, by our speaker tonight for the award show, Anton Troyer. We as publisher have reach internationally. With print, it's primarily um, nationwide and in Canada. We sold to the University of Pennsylvania Book Center. We, we sell to Left Bank Books in St. Louis. We sell to Fitgers up in Duluth. We have BBDI, we have a big um, um, Barnes and Noble reach. It used to be Borders, Borders went out of business. And then specialty independent stores like Birchbark Books. We also track all of our eBooks. We sell through Amazon the Android market, Apple Bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Google, Kobo, Overdrive. This analysis is the key to our success. We figure out who wants your books, who buys them, and, who, and we look at those sales whenever we look at a new book. We think about the comparables. If this book worked, this one may also work. Okay, so that's a lot of work, figuring out how to publish books that readers really want. Let me turn from sales to editorial because while I think a lot of people argue that full service publishers bring most added value in sales and distribution because really self-published authors don't really want to mess around as much with sales and marketing, what I argue is that full service publishers bring a unique editorial vision to you. We carefully map out what we'll publish each season and how our portfolio of books, how our offering to communities makes sense serving readers through a focused set of subject areas. Some presses will serve 22 different subject areas um, or more. And some of the big five publishers do that well because they're large and they can specialize. We've really tried to narrow, kind of in the way that you see a lot of American business, narrowing so that we, what we do is focused and we do it really well. So you get a sense we're Native American, Scandinavian studies, ethnic studies, Environment and land, we do have general history. Yeah, you gotta have a catch-all. Um, children's and then um, specialized digital. We want to give our readers who have an affinity for a subject area something new every year, if not every season. Right, we want you to keep coming back to us. What do they have now? Let's see what next book they have if you begin to like what we do. So question number four, ask your publisher what subject areas they currently publish in, how much and how often. But better yet, look at the publishers you're interested in. Look at what we call their front list and their back list, what the new offerings are and what those 400 titles they keep in print and keep re-promoting. Look at their catalogs and their websites. And then say to yourself, do their subject areas provide a cooperative community for you and your book? Do you admire the authors they have already published? And do you want to keep company with them? Our editors are top notch. And one of our best is here, Anne Regan, in the back of the room, is our editor-in-chief. I'd say they are our calling card. They are our brand. 
We specialize in hands-on real development editing. Ask your publisher about editorial support. What you might expect in terms of development editing, preparing photos and maps, knowing copyright, and then read their books. Do you find the prose clean and clear and the presentation complimentary? Become an expert on readability and style and what makes the printed page successful. A lot of people think, you know, my cover for my book with my publisher really wasn't that successful. And covers mean a lot. And we spend a lot of time on covers. Sometimes we, they, are, they don't hit the mark. But let me say, we bring a team of experts to a cover decision. Not only an experienced graphic designer, but all those interpreters of the cover as selling tool. Because going back to it, this book is a commodity that needs to sell in the world. So we ask these questions. How does the cover signal the right information for a particular book? What does the cover look like, both five feet away on a shelf and as a thumbnail in black and white on a website review? Before I begin any project with an author, I always ask, what's the most important thing to you in publishing this book? Some authors say, it's my first academic book and I want it to be as sound and accurate as possible. Others say, this is the first foundation for building my career as a photographer. Or, I've written this book to honor a community and I want them to shine front and center in every decision made about the book. This is an example of um, an author who said just that to me. We use those comments to guide our decisions on title, format, fact-checking, reviewing, really everything. So I'm going to flip this and make this a question you should be prepared to answer. What is the most important thing, priority, value, for you in publishing your book? Let me tell you a little bit about community building and how it relates to digital strategies, because sometimes people don't think that goes together. We're always experimenting on leveraging the publishing environment, um, either ourselves or opened up by somebody else. Digital Shorts is one example of a single topic, 25 page or less project. We have a collection of them, and many of them are timed to be part of contemporary conversation, whether it's the tearing down of the Ford plant in St. Paul or Minnesota voting rights as part of this national conversation. And it's aimed at readers who really prefer that magazine short form. Here's what else we do. We participate in library aggregators, those who serve professors and students who don't want their students to buy 10 books to cover the course, but want to put together chunks of chapters through aggregators like JSTOR, Project Muse, and even BrainHive that serves school libraries. Ask your publisher about ways your book might be repurposed for sale as chapters, digital downloads, excerpts, or in aggregated offerings. Think about what communities you want to reach, and then find out how other authors like you and their publishers are reaching them. So we're constantly looking for ways to bring good ideas to life, and we have a healthy trade list. We're currently publishing a really great book by our talented public program specialist, some of you may know her, Wendy Freshman. And the book is called Making History, Have a Blast with 15 Crafts. And I mean, it really is leveraging this do-it-yourself market. So what else can we bring as a publisher? And many universities have the same host institution added value. That is, we bring the benefit of the MNHS 
to the book. We have this wonderful in-house talent of media services. So we created with media services a seven-minute how-to video for all those do-it-yourselfers like me who don't feel too comfortable making wood trolls unless we see it in action. And when we also benefit from having Wendy do weekend workshops, bringing communities together in real life. So question eight, ask your publisher, are there ways your book might be part of public programming as a component with a lecture, a video series, an on-site workshop, bringing books to them rather than asking them to come to your books? We, of course, as publishers, travel to over 25 conferences, both nationally and regionally, and even here in the city specific, like our work with the Minneapolis One Reads program, where Minneapolis chose a single book for the community to read. And then our staff and our authors participated in these community events. That is part of publishing. Publishing is community, really. This is uh, an example of even more partnerships that we're doing. Uh, with other organizations for wider impact. When you intersect those um, constituents from like-type organizations, you just increase impact. So we recently launched a book about Justice Rosalie Wall and the second wave feminist movement in Minnesota. And as part of our de development for the book, we decided to ask Sa Senator Amy Klobuchar to write the foreword. She eagerly said yes. Then we collaborated with the William Mitchell School of Law in St. Paul, where Rosalie had had such impact, and we did this wonderful evening event and Skyped in Senator Klobuchar for the event opening. Recently, we partnered with local TPT TV to produce two documentaries based on new books. And there is a lot of this flipping. Um, newspapers are publishing e-books, radio stations are publishing e-books, and publishers are now doing documentaries. Uh, we did uh, documentaries to accompany Asian flavors in Minnesota in the 70s. These documentaries continue to air um, on the Minnesota Channel, and it's a constant repromotion of the book. We actually won an Emmy for Asian flavors, and we're nominated for a second Emmy for Minnesota in the 70s. So this ninth question, ask your publisher what partnerships they've developed with organizations that can help to promote the ideas and messages in your book. Here's just a simple July listing of the different events and promotion we do for just half of our front list. Everything from being on the radio to being featured in the local newspaper to doing um, drive time podcasts and major magazines like Midwest Living. Finally, I just want to show you a clear example of our content strategy because that is an even more, I'd say, sophisticated um, spin-off of book publishing. At the press, we offer three distinct but intersecting content areas. Books, the magazine, and then this new open access digital encyclopedia, Minipedia. Our subject areas overlap and we see author pool intersecting or rotating. So a new author might come in and test out skills and learn digital humanities, frankly, by writing a non-interpretive a uh, short article for Minipedia. Then that author might be interested, or we might be interested in that author, to expand into an interpretive 5,000-word article for the magazine. Now, if we really love each other, we think about a book together. But we've also had our veteran book authors, who are really wonderful supporters of the press, volunteer to write expert-level essays for Minipedia. So I think the question number 10 you might ask 
as scholars, as public historians, and as people who want to keep the message alive. Once I publish you with you, Publisher A, are there other ways I can keep my content alive and my audiences connected and invigorated through my contributions to other content areas in your domain? Through website guest blogs, uh, exhibit collaborations, journal articles, and the like. Our books are part of this institution-wide collaboration at the MNHS. When you publish with us, now I'm starting to sound like an infomercial, sorry, but really, when you publish with us, you publish with a team of people who care about your book, not just the press team, but also archivists, videographers, exhibit developers, reference specialists, if anyone has ever worked with Debbie Miller in developing a book, you know what I mean, and curriculum managers. So full service publishing can bring a lot more to the nuts and bolts of publishing, and I think that you should find out all we have to offer um, we will help match you with readers in ways that go beyond the nuts and bolts of publishing. Thank you. may think there's not much more left to be said about uh, this topic, but see if we can come up with something here. Um, slideshow from the beginning. Uh, my name's Kent Calder. Um, I worked at the Indiana Historical Society for many years with Tom. Um, I'm, I'm really gratified to be here today and, and to see uh, our director Peter Harstadt who was there when we were there here and it's it's just I haven't seen Peter in a long time so I'm really glad to see that and a lot of other people here um, I um, I've worked in a lot of different uh, publishing jobs in my life um, and I just started a new one um, within the last two months I I followed a long tradition uh, in my state and in my family of escaping across the Red River into Indian Territory uh, to get out of trouble you got into in Texas. <laughs> and uh, part of that trouble has been, you know, working at a historical society for a long time. But I, uh, I'm really impressed with Pam's presentation and always have been impressed with what the Minnesota Historical Society has done and working at the Indiana Historical Society. we we sought to be that same kind of publisher and um, even at the Texas State Historical Association where I was director for the last six years. Um, that, is, um, that is a good kind of not-for-profit publishing that you know, focuses on building community and, um, and both scholarly and for general audiences. And really, you know, as time went on, with all the historical societies I've worked at, which also includes the Wisconsin Historical Society, we, um, we s continue to reach out to uh, more broader and broader audiences, getting involved in trade publishing. What I'm going to talk about today, and I'll, I'll try not to duplicate things that have already been said, um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, university press publishing. Um, and starting at the at the University of Oklahoma Press in August was a great time. I've been there almost two months now, 
as an acquisitions editor and basically to acquire uh, local history topics on Texas and Oklahoma when they hired me. Uh, my bosses there said, well, we can't publish too many books on Texas. So, I mean, that was just like music to my ears. So, um, so I'm, in, I'm in the same business, but university presses work a little bit differently. And, and um, when you work with an editor at a university press, it behooves you to kind of know what some of these differences are. So um, let's, let's talk about them. I mean, university presses are publishers just like trade publishers, and that means they perform all the same tasks that trade publishers do. Um, uh, acquiring, developing, designing, producing, marketing, and selling books and journals, um, just like uh, Random House or any other commercial publisher. Um, the difference in the university press is that it is an extension of its uh, parent institution. Um, and so it has a scholarly mission, and that mission involves publishing um, books uh, for a small audience of specialists, which we call monographs. And here's an example of one that just came out um, from the University of Oklahoma Press that when that one crossed my desk, I didn't really spend a whole lot of time with that one, but, um, but I wanted to show it to you. So, but university presses also because of the changes that are taking place in academic libraries where the money that is, had been spent traditionally to buy monographs, it, it used to be, as Tom mentioned, that you could depend upon a monograph of any sort selling 700 to 1,000 copies or even more, you know, depending on how far you went back. Now, you know, you're lucky if you can do 300 copies, as Tom said. And so, um, what university presses have evolved into doing is reaching into what they call a regional trade market. So this is the same kind of market that um, the historical societies publish in. But we're, you know, in Oklahoma, I'm not limited to Oklahoma, I'm not limited to Texas. We do, uh, we do local history throughout the Southwest uh, and, and all throughout the West and other places too, but that's primarily what we do. Um, this is the mission statement of the University of Oklahoma Press. And as you can see, there's a, a, the, the part at the end about to offer broader presentations for the general public. That's where local historians come in. That's where local historians have a place with the university press community. Now, when you're working with the university press, it can be frustrating because where Pam's you know, she's going to make you feel comfortable and want to know what you want to accomplish with your book. We're going to put you through all kinds of paces in terms of uh, what we call uh, peer review. Um, so what you want to do is kind of understand the position of the editor that you might be working with. So university presses are very good outlets for local history. But they're not often, they're not always as easy to work with as perhaps a historical society press. And so it's up to you to find, but, but it may be Minnesota Historical Society Press excluded. It may be that a university press can find a bigger audience for your book than a historical society press. Um, but anyway, so when you begin to look at publishers and you look at university presses, you want to look at their websites, you want to find the acquisitions editor or the sponsoring editor that's pertinent to yours. And if you um, look at the Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma uh, 
press website, you're going to find me there, and uh, all of a sudden. <clears throat> but what uh, the way we work is we like well-crafted proposals to come in. And I, I had a handout at the back of the room. Uh, I don't know if any are there, but it's, uh, it's something that we, we send out all the time. It's on our website, how to submit a proposal. And any press has something like that on it. And when you want to work with a press, you know, it's, it's really important to look at what they want to get from you and to present that in as complete and as professional a uh, condition as you can. And that's going to help further your project um, because what, a, what an acquisitions editor in the university press has to do is be the advocate for this project as it goes through the various stages to, to publication. And the first stage is peer review. Um, let's see what my next one is here. Oh. Uh, so if I get a really good proposal, I look at it, other people in the press look at it, um, then um, I'll decide, well, you know, I want to I follow up with this author. I want to look at this book. I think it would be a good book for the list. And so send it out to readers, usually two readers, expert readers. This takes four, four weeks sometimes, sometimes longer. Um, to get an opinion back. Okay, so I get back two opinions. If they're positive, um, then I can move forward with it. If, they're, if they disagree, then I go to a third, uh, a third reader. And if sometimes, generally, two negative uh, not recommendations to publish are going are gonna to pretty much kill a project. So you got to be careful who you choose. And in your proposal, you can suggest readers, and what I usually do is, you know, I'll, I'll pick a reader that the author suggested, and I'll pick a reader that the author didn't suggest, just to kind of keep it balanced. But so you want to get a good sense of that, and so the, once you decide to move forward, the first thing you got to do is meet you with your in-house editorial committee, and that consists of manuscript editing, it consists of production and marketing. And, and all the other acquisitions editors, and you sit around and you talk about the merits of this book and um, whether or not it has potential for the list, whether the author can really do what they say they're gonna do, um, and how much more time do you wanna spend on it. If, if, uh, if it gets through the editorial committee, in-house editorial committee, which can be pretty tough, um, then it goes to the faculty advisory board. And it's up to the sponsoring editor or the acquisitions editor to present that to the faculty advisory board. And this board is made up of faculty all over the university, multidisciplinary from all disciplines and interests. And so, but understand, an understanding of what the press does best and what's going to help, help the university and the press um, move forward. So you present it to the faculty advisory board. Then, um, in the, in the process, by the when you're submitting it to, I'm trying to see these people over here, but when, when, you, when you do these presentations to these committees and to the faculty advisory board, you have already done a um, P&L. You've done an estimate on what it might cost to do it, and you have, um, and you have played with the price, you've played with 
the number that you might be able to print. I put a P&L back there of a project that I'm actually uh, working on now. And, um, and, and this, this term, gross margin, is, is like, it's, it's the thing that comes up the most, you know, what you, especially with the marketing and salespeople. What's your gross margin on this? So if you look at the P&L that, that I put back there, um, it's for 750 copies. It's got a uh, 29.95 price on it for a hardcover, um, and you know the gross margin is about 68%, which is pretty good. You try you you want to have no smaller gross margin than 50%, and you want to have you know the higher the better. Um, so what you're trying to look at is the first printing. You want to you want to not lose money on that first printing. So that first, whether it's 750 copies or whether it's more or less, um, that's what you're looking at as the first three years of the book. If it makes it past that, then it can come out new in paper. Um, it can go into, uh, if, if it gets picked up in a course, it can go into digital print on demand and it can stay in print forever. Now, as Pam said, every book that comes out from the University of Oklahoma Press has a simultaneous ebook that comes out that's distributed to like 21 um, partners that we distribute with. So um, it's a whole different world. 10% of the revenue of the press now, and most presses are, are in the 10 to 12, 15% range of getting, what are y'all? 8% as far as ebook revenue accounting for overall revenue of the press. So it's a, it's a growing thing. One of the aspects I like about OU Press is that even though uh, it has an ebook program that's only relatively new, it's, it's an old fashioned kind of press and it does books the old fashioned way. And if you ever look at the kind of books that the University of Oklahoma Press does, do a lot of art books, do a lot of um, books that are uh, involved with um, exhibitions so that you, you, you partner, as Pam was saying, with different museums around the country. And you, sometimes the museums will get a grant, and the part of the grant will go to subvent or to su uh, support the publication of a catalog or a book to go along with it. And that's what um, editors are always looking for. So even if your book makes it through all the committees and is approved by the faculty advisory board, and then you get a contract, they may say to you, and I'm actually working on a book like this right now, it's approved a book, and it's approved for publication, got a contract based on the author bringing in a subvention of $15,000. <laughs> and this is for a big architecture book that's going to be very expensive, not going to sell a whole lot of copies on Bruce Goff, who was a pretty well-known architect in Oklahoma. Um, once the contract's issued, it's uh, basic uh, kinds of uh, issues that are resolved. Usually, uh, the standard royalty agreement that we have is like 8% on net. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's, you know, that's negotiable, but that's pretty much a standard royalty agreement. Uh, author's responsible to, for a warranty to make sure that the author has the rights to, to give to the press. Like most presses, I assume Minnesota is the same way. We like to register copyright in the name of the press. Sometimes we register it in the name of the author. We don't really argue about that. But um, these are the kinds of things when you have a contract you'll be looking at. Um, we'll, we'll, 
we'll give an advance. If, it, if it's an author we really want and they want an advance, we'll, we'll give them a couple of thousand dollars to do some research or to finish up the book or to travel here to get some uh, permissions. I mean, it's, it's the author's responsibility to pay for the maps and they can pay for them out of royalties. So if you get an advance, you're probably gonna get behind on your payment for your maps and your illustrations and your permissions and your index. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a tricky little process and this is part of what you will be doing when you work with your acquisitions editor is uh, on the contract issue. Once the contract is signed, then it, it's assigned to a list. There's a deadline for the manuscript to come in and, um, and you will work with your acquisitions editor up until the point that that manuscript and all the permissions and the illustrations are submitted to the press. Once that happens, and once the acquisitions department gets it in order and makes sure everything there, then that's transmitted to, in our place, it's called manuscript editorial. And, um, and that would have, that's the time when you would be assigned a copy editor. And, uh, and that copy editor can be a freelance, freelancer could be working anywhere. And you work back and forth with the copy editor to make sure that it conforms to house style, that there's, there's not any language infelicities in there, and that it's just um, generally a well-written book. This kind of service that a full-service publisher does that Pam was talking about. Um, so at that point, you'll be pretty much through with your acquisitions editor. And that person will be on working on other projects, but you will, you will be working with your manuscript editor, with your copy editor, and then when manuscript editorial gets through with it, then they transmit, transmit the project into production and design, and so it's a whole different group of set of people. And, that, and really, what's interesting about full-service publishers, I don't know what Minnesota does, but... Um, we, we rely on our authors to be our proofreaders. So once it goes through design, once you get the pages back, there's no other proofreading going on but what the, what the author does. Uh, and you know, when a press like the University of Oklahoma Press publishes 100 books a year, 50 each season, that's a lot of books for you know, a, a small amount of people producing them. So, it's really incumbent upon the author to be uh, to take that, you know, seriously and do that proofreading and and work with the design people to get that done. And then there's also the index and all that kind of stuff. And then you have your finished book. And um, these are some of the books that have been coming out in this fall with the University of Oklahoma Press. And so, um, you know, I think just understanding that. Um, you know, your acquisitions editor is the person that's going to be the person moving this book forward through the press. I, um, and also, this whole process, I'm working on a number of books. One book I'm working on with a very good friend of mine, and it got two negative reviews on it. And, and I basically sent, it, sent the book out to be reviewed by, by the people who her agent suggested, and they both were negative. One of them said not to publish. The other was negative and, and said, but didn't kill it. And so I was able to send it out to another reader. But this is very hard 
to deal with this kind of criticism on it, something that you've been working on for a long time. And so it's, it's very difficult. But the point I was going to make is that the response to the reader's reports in a university press is very important. And so even though you're angry, I mean, sit down first time and write your reader's report response back to the editor, and it can be as angry and as mean as you want it to be and how stupid these readers are and everything. But your editor will tell you, okay, now write the next one, <laughs> where, where, you, where you tell the editors how much you appreciate the time they put into giving you this constructive criticism so that now you can produce a better book. And that's, what, that's the one you got to write. And you may have to write two or three more before you get to that point. But uh, anyway, um, so it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than working with a trade publisher. And, but nevertheless, university presses can be uh, good outlets for, um, for local history publishing. So um, with that, we'll open it up to questions. <clears throat> This is for either Kent or Pam. How do you determine the price of a book when it is going to be sold? Can you go first? Okay. Uh, a couple of a couple of different factors work into it. We also do P and Ls, so we see how the margin for a book runs in a spreadsheet at say nineteen ninety five, twenty two ninety five, twenty four ninety five. Our marketing and sales. Department has tension around pricing in a trade environment. Um, in some ways, the margin is trumped by what the marketplace will demand. So there are certain kinds of books that won't be bought over $24.95. So there'll be this pushback around our launch meeting where we talk about that. So we look at the P&L, we try to recover our costs, but we also look at what the market will generally pay for a comparable book. Um, sometimes if we have a subvention, um, it allows us to price that book um, um, below what we need to because that covers. But what we don't do is well, we'll print more copies to get a lower unit cost so then we can have a better price because we just, you, we're all managing our inventory very slimly and we don't want to play that game. Does that, Kent, I have more to add. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how we do it. Um, I, I just play around with the price 
on the spreadsheet until I can get it past my marketing director. And, and, and no, but really, uh, Pam, I think, does mostly trade type publishing with trade type discounts. Um, we do. We have 20% of our books are course books and go into the academic market. Okay, so what, what we're always deciding is this, does this book have any trade potential? And if it does, you've got to apply a trade discount to it, which is 50% or more. And, and also, you've got to be willing to put up with returns and all this other kind of stuff. So it used to be that university presses kind of went blithely into the trade market until they found out all the pitfalls of it. And now, I think we're much more cautious, at least our marketing department is. And so we generally... The default is a is a what we call a short discount, which is like a twenty percent discount. It's mainly sold on Amazon. It's mainly doesn't show up in bookstores. Um, it's mainly distributed to libraries, and and you you want to get your seven hundred copies out of that, you know. And so you can price you can price a short discounted book a lot higher if you want to. If you in but you know on the other hand, there are books that it's not clear. You know, I, I'm working on a book right now. I, it could be a trade book. If I could get it written and, and get some of the appendices out of there, it could be a pretty good trade book. But on the other hand, I don't want to risk it. So if you look at the P&L that I put back there, which is still a work in progress, it's got a short discount on it, and it's priced, you know, like an academic monograph. And we'll, we'll see what happens, you know. I will say there are a couple of unique things going on in the trade, and maybe your own experience buying books plays this out. Um, the cheap paperbacks, the highly consumable fiction is at a price. You see a lot of people doing original paperbacks now, and you maybe aren't going to pay more than 17 bucks for a paperback. And you can get that ebook at anywhere from $1.99 to $9.99. So there's that end. But then this gift end of the market, where maybe the recession of 08 pushed us to think about a beautiful coffee table book as that value signaled gift for Uncle Bob that maybe you would have bought um, an iPod for, but now the recession means, well, you're going to buy a $49.95 architectural book, but it still has value. And so some of these very beautiful gift books can bear a bigger price. So it's, it's interesting. It is a lot of playing around on spreadsheets and talking to marketing sales who talk to booksellers who say, you won't sell that at $24.95. You got to bring it down. Yes, I think this is for Kent and Pam. Is a subvention required for all of your books? Uh, good question. It's it's not required. Um, and in fact, let me walk around here. Um, where did you go? Oh, there you are. Um, uh, it's it's very much liked, and 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 the. The publication or the peer review process is, is not supposed to be influenced by the fact that there is a subvention or not. So that all comes at the end after peer review. But there are certain books that, like the architecture book I was just talking about, that aren't going to be done unless uh, you have a subvention. They just simply can't make that. They can't support themselves for the first three years with price and press run and, and sales, and especially you can't even sell them in bookstores. So you've, you've got to have a subvention. And sometimes, I mean, actually, um, I've, 
know of cases where editors have said to an author, we'll do this book when you bring in a $15,000 subvention, thinking the author will never bring that in and they'll never have to do that book. But uh, lately I've, I've experienced an author who actually got the $15,000 and so now we're, we're doing the book, you know. But I'm also working on another book where it, it's gone through the peer review process. It's perfectly well accepted, uh, but it's it's part of the Pecos River Resolution Corporation, and they're they're offering to pay for the book, the entire thing, and so we're very happy to get that. So, I mean, I guess bringing a little money to the table, whether it's through a museum partner or whether it's through uh, your dean, uh, whether it's through your your department. Uh, lots of times departments will give subventions to younger scholars, especially in certain disciplines, uh, art history and things like that, to help them with the publication of their first book because certain certain kinds of books are very expensive to publish and the departments know that. This is for the panel. None of you mentioned reviews. Do you even try to get reviews? Or do you have strategies for getting reviews? Or do reviews not matter in terms of sales? Well, first of all, um, reviews in academic journals take often at least a year to appear. So uh, the reviews in academic journals often have minimal effect on sales. Uh, but I think all publishers uh, want to get their books reviewed, and so uh, all publishers, be they historical societies, university presses, will send, once the book is accepted, will send a, a marketing questionnaire to the author, and among the several questions asked is, uh, please tell us uh, the journals in your field uh, and or uh, likely review media to which the publisher can send review copies. So the short answer to your question is yes, all publishers want their books to be reviewed. Uh, and so likely review media are, the, the, the ones that'll get a review out fastest would be say newspapers uh, and or um, say local magazines. In the example of local history publishing, uh, there will be say, um, in addition to, um, wide circulation newspapers, there'll be the, um, the kind of you know, local neighborhood um, newspapers, advertisers, that sort of thing, uh, which will get the word out faster. Uh, then you'll have the peer-reviewed uh, academic journals, uh, and it, I know it's a, it's a basic principle of academic journals that they will not do what they call unsolicited reviews. So then it, it becomes the job of the journal editor uh, to select uh, a reviewer for particular books that they receive from a publisher. Um, beyond that, I would also point out that in the field of history, uh, there's a wonderful um, website, uh, HNET, uh, that's run at Michigan State University. And I've forgotten the exact numbers, but there's several dozen of the states have dedicated websites, so for instance, in Indiana, it's H Indiana. Uh, in our book, we cite the number of states that have their own dedicated HNET 
um, but it's, it's a large number, it's in the dozens. Then they have um, um, broader categories of uh, regional uh, history, and if I'm lucky, uh, I might be able to find that, but um, it's, uh, you know, websites dedicated to, shall we say, regional history, uh, and let me see if I can find that. Um, but such things as the borderlands and um, hmm. um, I may not be able to, ah, yes, here we go. Here's a sampling of, you know, above and beyond the dedicated state um, um, websites related to uh, HNET. Uh, here's a sampling, Appalachia, Borderlands. Um, there, there is actually uh, a, um, an HNET site on local history, uh, which also relates to museums. New England, oral history, uh, public history, uh, rural, south, and west. So uh, that can be a good venue, and, and these HNET sites uh, publish reviews. So that's, uh, that's a, um, a, a, a worthwhile um, a venue to consider uh, when um, trying to put together a list of review media. Anybody else? Oh, oh uh, uh, Pam, Pam, Pam's got a, a comment. John, I'll, I'll just add that that's part of the marketing plan that I said we should all ask our publishers for. And we actually don't have money for advertising at the Minnesota Historical Society Press. So reviews is, are a big way for us to promote the book. Um, and, you know, peer review, pre-publication, is really... Uh, a way to avoid a bad review post-publication, right? So just to make that link. Um, but not only do this, the channels that Tom talked about, we're even investigating those high-profile bloggers. So we're keeping in our subject areas those um, web reviews that are having more and more impact. So um, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. It's still a big part of our marketing plan. I would say one of the, one of the problems about it is um, the big newspapers that used to have book review sections in them, like Houston Chronicle and Dallas Morning News and Fort Worth Star-Telegram in Texas, um, they don't have those people anymore. They don't work there anymore. So the whole, the whole newspaper book reviewing world is much, much smaller than it was in the past. <clears throat> Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, I'm way in the back here. Uh, at any rate, uh, I'm very fortunate uh, where the publisher came to me and asked, would you please write us a book? And uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, I, was, I accepted the offer, and I am now a published author of one of the 8,000 Arcadia publishing books. And I have an ongoing, you know, dispute with Kelly Kellett um, over the idea of having a competition amongst Arcadia authors. Now, I told her, I says, look, I think my book is probably one of the 10 best books that Arcadia Publishing has ever published. But I want them to be fair about it. That's just my opinion. I want, you know, a, a peer review of all of the Arcadia Publishing Images of America series 
you know, to see if my book really is one of the ten best published. So how do I convince the publisher, Katie Kellett and company, uh, that it's a worthwhile idea because you could offer to the public a package deal. Get all ten books at once. Right? Why buy just one book when you can buy the ten best? This won't directly uh, answer that question, but I will say that uh, in, as part of the marketing uh, effort that follows publication, um, publishers uh, can and do nominate um, the books that they uh, feel are of particularly high quality for publishing awards. So like the uh, uh, most of the academic history societies and organizations, uh, have annual awards for best book in the field, and the publishers will nominate their titles for consideration for those awards. That's that's not doesn't directly address your question, but that's part of the post marketing, post publishing, post publication marketing effort is to nominate um, particularly meritorious books for publication awards. What do you see as the best route for publishing uh, one of these micro-histories that, that's going to be too small of a, a production run where publishers aren't going to really look at it? Can you say more? What, say more. Only people in that county would be interested in this town. I mean, I, I'm sure there are lots of them out there. What do you think is the best way to, to go about that? And is it your idea or theirs? Mine. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, here you go. Oh, that's right. I forget about the lady behind the screen. Um, I use uh, micro histories a lot in classes. I am firmly convinced that they will get students interested. And I will give one quick example that I suggested to Kent and Tom, and they put it in their book. It's a book that I use for freshmen, and I use it in upper level classes too, at the beginning of the fall and spring semesters. They have to read a whole book the first weekend after the first week of class. That's asking a lot of an 18-year-old these days. But I, I don't give them a choice. And, um, and they buy the book, and they actually do try to read it. And, and some of them succeed in reading it. And here's why. The book was written by a law professor at the University of Richmond. Uh, it's about the community on the eastern shore of Virginia, which is basically a sandbar of two counties not connected to the rest of the state, um, in the 17th century. Okay, hard sell to an 18-year-old. But the author is a genius on titles. Anne Orthwood's Bastard, Sex and Law in Early Virginia. <laughs> they read it. They learn a lot about Anne, who has an illicit affair, dies in childbirth, 
one of the babies dies in childbirth, and the second twin survives. So it talks about what becomes of this little boy who is an orphan, whose father does not acknowledge his birth, and four legal cases, this is also a hard sell, four legal cases that explain what goes on and how the people on the eastern shore of Virginia develop their own take on British law to suit their own needs. And it isn't the same as Britain, and sometimes they just politely ignore what's going on in Britain because, after all, they're on a sandbar in the middle of nowhere. Um, so microhistories can be ideal, but you've got to have the imagination of saying, what makes my story something that, I would say, an 18-year-old who doesn't want to be there and sure doesn't want to read your book um, would make them pick it up? I, I think on a practical um, side, I, it might be a great candidate for self-publishing. And there are um, companies like Lightning Source from Ingram who can serve you really well doing a print-on-demand book. I'd, I'd talk with who, whoever you can in your community, if you have a local college or historical society, to see if they've done it before and how they put it together. I'd also see about funding, because there's all kinds of funding hidden in pockets of $1,000 or $2,000 in that range where that might get you started with, say, a freelance editor or a freelance typesetter. But I do think there are so many really good companies serving self-publishing that might be the way to go for this. And then there's also just having it available for free in a format that is available through the web um, or as an ebook, the digital shorts that we've done ca can be relatively easy to do and mount just through Amazon, say. Not Other questions? Yeah. I think everybody will go to the Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Yeah.